In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to make your way there, we'll continue in our study uh, through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. And uh, as you're making your way there, just a, just a little word of caution. Uh, the subject matter today is PG-13, uh, and uh, I promise that I will be very careful so I don't have to fire myself, but um, if, you have, uh, if you have young kids in here, you might want to rethink that just because of the subject matter, so, uh, so know that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as you're making your way there, by way of introduction, i just tell you a brief story. Um, this last week, as, as you know, if you watch the news or if you had the occasion to be in San Diego, there's a huge power outage, and uh, it affected a couple of states and parts of Mexico, and, and um, my neighbor was uh, on a business trip. He was actually in San Francisco, but he was supposed to fly into Lindbergh Field, and the, they had the airport closed because uh, of the power outage. So he got stuck in San Francisco, and, and on his way back from the airport, uh, he passed uh, through the airport uh, this, uh, into this neighborhood, and there's this homeless gal uh, in her 40s dancing naked in the street. Uh, I mean, San Francisco, right? So there he is, and he's like, why doesn't somebody do something about this? Well, I come to find out, it's legal. It's legal. And I'm like, there's no way. I get on Google, I search it, it's legal. And, and, and you think about the implications of this. I mean, they, 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 you can, you know, you, let's say you take public transportation to work, you know, and there you are, you're on the BART, you know, you and your bagel and your cup of coffee, and hello, you know, you get, you get a taxi. Worse yet, imagine this, you're on a bus, you know, and it's afternoon, 80, 90 degrees, and some guy's been marinating in there for half an hour, and you come in, you're going to sit where he would. And it's just disgusting, really, when you think about it. I'm like, are you kidding? Are you for real right now? It's, I mean, you know, you take your kids to the park, and they need counseling afterwards. I mean, you know, it's crazy. And here's the thing right now. I mean, they, the big debate in the legislature, like, you know, this is what we pay them to do. The big debate there or whatever it is, the city council, they're, they're debating on how to handle this in restaurants. I'm like, what happened to no shirt, no shoes, no service, you know? It's crazy. It's disgusting. Now, I tell you that story to establish context because as we get into it, 1 Corinthians written to a culture of people who would have fit right in in San Francisco. I mean, their, their attitude was, man, they like to party hard. They're all about booty calls and friends with benefits and Craigslist ads and, you know, the whole nine yards. Basically, anything licentious, they're like, yep, we're up. That sounds good to me. You know, that was the culture that, that Paul's writing this letter to. And you know, the Corinthians had such a bad reputation that throughout Greece, if you ran into a prostitute, they referred to them as Corinthian girls. I mean, that, that's the, the city that, that Paul's writing to. That's the, the culture. Their prevailing attitude was basically, if it feels good, do it, man. And the more of it, the better. And so as often happens, the attitude of the culture begins to creep into the church. Paul, like any God-fearing, spirit-filled, spirit-led Christian, says, that's dark, that's ugly, they need Jesus. And so he goes in, he plants the church. But what happens when you do that is that now the culture starts to infiltrate, it starts to push its way into the truth, or into the church. And so what happens is there's lots of confusion as these young Christians coming in, getting saved, 
there's lots of confusion that they carry with them about sex, about lifestyles, about freedoms. And in many ways, their thinking is incongruent with biblical Christianity. Um, it's not unlike when we, when we planted our first church, we're, we're there and, and um, we met in a school in the early days, just like we do here. And the school district, you had to pay them to have a, a custodian come. Uh, he unlocked everything, and he was there. And, and so we're actually doing, you know, a couple services there. And, and so he has to stick around. Well, he, this guy, he's not saved, but he decides he's going to sit in the back of the, you know, the gymnasium there and, and listen to the message being preached. And uh, ends up, you know, this, this ungodly man gets saved. We have a Christmas party. He invites his wife. They come. And, uh, you know, uh, it, everything seems good until, you know, we come to find out that, that he and this gal aren't married. They're just shacking up. And they got a, a few kids amongst them. And, and so we said, get out. You can't be here. You're sinners. You have no bit. No, I didn't do that. What we did was we said, we're blessed you guys are here. And you're, you're a sinner saved by grace. And this was your life before Christ. But, but you're a new creature in Christ. You've gotten saved. Now you're here, now you're, you're coming, now you're growing in the faith, and now it's time for us to talk to you about what mature Christians do. And so let's talk to you about this relationship. Let's talk to, let's talk to you about your living arrangement. And, and so now we began to counsel them. Now we began to bring them along and show them, okay, that was then, this is now, now here's how you walk as a Christian. This is exactly what Paul's doing here in, in Corinth. And so he's, he's dialoguing with these guys. He's taking, to, he's talking to them and he's, and he's dealing with, okay, hey, look, let me untie all the moral and theological issues that, that you're dealing with as a baby Christian living in a pagan culture and bringing a lot of those into the church. Let's get you all straightened out so you're walking in obedience to Christ. That's, that's, that's what the whole thing's about. Now, as he does this, what he does is he, he'll put forth, he'll say, hey, look, here's what you've been doing, here's what you need to do, and then he'll take their objections and he'll refute them one by one. And really, that's the big idea of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. The entire letter, the big idea is that Paul says, you're doing this, you need to stop it, and you need to do this. You're doing this, you need to stop it, you need to do this. So the whole, and then he's backing it up and explaining why they need to do it. That's the big idea. Well, the big idea of this section of chapter 6, as we finish chapter 6 today, the whole big idea is how should Christians glorify God with their bodies? See, because what's going on there, it's sexual immorality is so rampant, poor, uh, uh, um, uh, having uh, homosexual relationships, having prostitutes, that's all normal. And so, I mean, you wouldn't think so, but Paul's actually got to talk to these guys and go, okay, no, on your way home from church, you can't swing by and pick up a prostitute. You can't do that. And they're like, well, why not? This is what he's dealing with here. So um, like any good teacher, what, we're, what we see throughout this epistle, we'll see it today. As Paul makes a, a point, he, what he does is he, he'll tell them something, he'll make a point, and then he'll anticipate the questions or the challenges that they'll have to that point. So he'll say, you know, hey, you can't pick up a prostitute on the way home from church. And then he'll say, now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this. Now, let me tell you why that's wrong. And so he does this over and over again. He'll make a point, hey, I know what you're thinking, and let me correct that. So uh, with that in mind, here in chapter 6, back up just a little bit. We left off... um, in verse 11, but I want to pick it up in verse 9, because what happens is 9 through 11, Paul's making a point, and then he's going to answer some question that he knows is cooking in their head. So here's his point, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, those who are engaged in sexual relationships outside of a marriage covenant, nor idolaters, those that worship things instead of God, nor adulterers, those who are engaged in a sexual relationship with someone else while they're in a marriage covenant, uh, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, that's somebody who is uh, a homosexual prostitute, that's what that, that term refers to. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now that's the point that he makes. Now, He anticipates they're going to have a question, and really what verse 12 is all about is him answering their question. He he asks and answers the question. So here's the question. He says, all things are lawful for me, and here's the answer, but all things are not helpful. And he asks another question, all things uh, uh, are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So basically, here's what's happening. Paul makes a point, hey, you know, you, you can't be sleeping with people. You can't, you know, God's going to judge homosexuals. He's going to judge sodomites, those that engage in uh, homosexual prostitution. No, you can't pick up a prostitute on the way home from church. And they would argue and say, wait a minute, all things are lawful for me. In other words, what they're saying is, it's not illegal. The, the, the government allows this. This is, this is perfectly legal for me to be involved in this. So what's wrong with this? Let me get a drink of water here. I'm going to start choking. Sorry about that. So what's wrong with it? Well, you got two consenting adults. You know, there's no molestation. There's no rape. <coughs> there's no abuse. There's a couple of people who want to hook up and have sex. It's not illegal. What's wrong with that? And this is what Paul's responding to when he says, you know, all things are lawful for me. But he says, but not all things are helpful. Now, if you're a note taker, that word helpful, um, you might want to circle it and nearby write the word symphono. That's the Greek word. And you might imagine we get the word symphony from that word. And the point that Paul's making is, look, symphony, by the way, means to bring together at the same time. And so the point that Paul's making is saying, look, it might be legal according to the law of the land, but it's not right in the eyes of God. And as Christians, what we need to do is we need to have a higher moral standard than just what the law of the land is. You see, because the law of the land is not the high watermark of, Christian, of Christianity. It's just the starting point, the, the entryway to the, the high watermark of Christianity. And so what you have to have is a symphony, a combination of a number of different factors If you want to honor God, and so the law of the land is one, but God's law is another. We'll illustrate this with a with a a point of application here, in in uh, or a point of illustration from our the government in which we live. Abortion is legal, but it doesn't honor God. It's murder in the eyes of God, and so a Christian could say, "Well, it's legal, yeah, but it's not legal to God. It's murder in His eyes." It's an abomination to him. And so this is what Paul is saying. He said, hey, you can't pick up a prostitute on the way home from church. And they're like, well, it's not against the law. And he says, yeah, but it's against God's law. It's not helpful. It doesn't, doesn't fit in symphony with him. So yes, we have to obey the law of the land, but we have to obey God as well. Jesus told his disciples, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
Yes, we have an obligation to obey the governing laws, but we also have that overarching obligation to submit ourselves to the law of God. And the point really that Paul is making here in this text, in this whole chapter, um, is that the, it all starts with our physical bodies. If I'm going to honor God, if I'm going to take everything in symphony together and add it all together, it, it has to manifest itself in my physical body. Paul told the Roman church, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And so Paul's having this dialogue with these guys, and he says, hey, stay away from prostitutes. And they're like, well, it's legal. And Paul's like, yeah, but it's not in symphony with God. And then now they respond again. They say, uh, all things are lawful for me. And again, this is Paul anticipating their question. And so Paul responds to that and says, look, here's the deal. Yeah, it's legal, but it's not in symphony with God. And they go, oh, don't be such a Pharisee, man. We're living under grace now. God knows my heart. I have freedom in Christ. And Paul responds to that and says, no, but I will not be brought under the power of any. That word power, again, if you're a note taker, uh, it's only used two times in the New Testament. A very interesting word. Uh, in the Greek, it literally means to exercise power over. And here's what Paul is saying. This is the point of application, as we'll see as it unfolds. Paul's making the point that sex by design is powerful, that it's very complex. And, and the idea here is that God made sex that way on purpose. And the purpose of sex is that in God's economy, it serves as a bonding agent, okay? This idea is that sex in the marriage relationship is a bonding agent, and it bonds you together. But outside of the marriage covenant, then what sex becomes is a binding agent, and it binds you into this shackle of being bound up in sin. And so you can either be powerfully bonded together, husband and wife, through this, this vehicle of sex that God gives, or you can be bound up in shackles and, and in bondage to sex. And this is what Paul is saying. I will not be brought under the power of any. I'm not going to allow this thing that God has created to bind my wife and I together. I'm not going to allow that to have it become something that I'm bond, bound and shackled to. I'm not going to be caught up in that kind of power. See, and what Paul is telling these Corinthians is, look, you guys need to understand you're not free because you're enslaved to sex. You, you need to face that. You can't, you can't control it. You're being mastered by it. You're being enslaved by it. You can try to excuse it. You can say it's lawful all day long. You can make all kinds of sort of exceptions to it and say, oh, I'm an exception to the rule, but you're stuck in a rut of sin and a habitual pattern of sin and everything is not working in symphony in your life. You guys need to face that. You're Christians. You're, you're focusing on one thing. Hey, this is legal. Yeah, but it doesn't honor God. That's the point. And, you know, just pure statistics, uh, other than the fact that the Holy Spirit has shown me this and told me this very authoritatively, and I, I know from experience because I'm your pastor and I counsel and shepherd you, but just from a pure statistics standpoint, I will say that the same goes for many of you here today. That just as Paul would say to the Corinthian church, you are, this sex is supposed to be a bonding agent between you and your wife, and yet it's become this binding agent, and you're shackled by this sin, I would say to many of you, you're in the same boat, that you're shackled 
in this sin that has to do with sexual immorality. If you're a porn addict, you know you're not free. You're shackled by this thing. If you're a a gal here and your life up until this point has been characterized by compromise, by bending your life around another, by bending your life around a guy and, and using sex and holding on to this guy and losing him and feeling like, you know, just completely horrible and guilty and cast aside and then latching on to somebody else and being promiscuous with them and this is really a character pattern of your life, you know that you're in bondage to this. I don't have to persuade you of that. You know. If you keep having sex outside of marriage, if you're a single person and, and your life consists of, you know, the singles bars or the nightclub or the, you know, I'm going to go out to the wineries with friends and you end up hooking up all the time and it's just this constant merry-go-round of, of temptation, of sin, of guilt, of remorse, of, you know, train wreck, I feel badly, and now you're back on the same merry-go-round, you know that sex for you is bondage, it's not binding. And that's not the way that God intended it to be. Now, you can put whatever kind of arguments you want on it. Um, you, can, you can justify your sin any way you like, and I've heard it all. You know, I, God knows my heart. Uh, we're in love we're married in our hearts, blah, blah, blah. I've heard it all. No, you're married in your pants. That's what you're married. <laughs> really. And, and what, what we do at this point is we try and make excuses for it, just as these Corinthians might try and figure it all in and push it in. And what'll happen, you know, it just, Paul's like, look, you're slave. Just, just call it what it is. Just admit it. You're enslaved to this thing. And if you weren't a slave, you'd be able to to say no, but you can't say no, and that just proves that you're a slave. It's like when I used to smoke. I used to smoke two packs a day, and I would say, hey, you know what? Quitting's easy. I do it all the time. Who was I kidding? I wasn't quitting any. I was enslaved to cigarettes. And so, again, the idea here is that Paul's saying, look, sex can either be this beautiful thing or it can be this binding thing, and, and for you guys, it's become, a, it's become a, just a bondage. You're in bondage to, this, to the sin of sexual sin. Now, here's what some will say at this point as we talk about this. They'll go, look, come on. Sex is just a part of life. I mean, if you're going to, you, you, you can't control sex. Control, controlling our sexual urges is like telling a compass not to point north. Come on. You, I mean, you, okay, we know that the kids are going to engage in sex, so you can't tell them to abstain from sex. We just got to encourage safe sex because they're going to do it anyway, and you shouldn't expect that. It's a nice thing, and oh, yeah, we're going to stay pure till we're married. But you and I both know that's not going to happen, and a lot of people have this attitude. Um, and and they, their attitude is it's just it's, it's biology. You can't fight it. And this is exactly the question that Paul anticipates that they're going to say to him. And so he responds to that. Um, verse 13, he says, Food for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Here's the point. Basically, what Paul anticipates is that they're going to say, Hey, look, we just have natural biological urges. You know, you're hungry, you eat. You're thirsty, you sleep. That's what you do. So if you want sex, you have sex. It's just, I mean, nobody's going to say, oh, you ate, you're going to hell. 
you know? And so Paul, you know, the, the anticipates these Corinthians would go, so sex is just like that. It's a natural, it, biological urge. It's just, you know, when your back scratches, you scratch it. You know, and when, when you're thirsty, you drink. And, and that's it's just what you do. It's just physiology. It's just biology. It's just, just the, the normal functioning of the body. So what's so wrong with that? And this is what the world teaches us, doesn't it? The world has this attitude. The world tells you that you're just a highly evolved animal. It's that whole Darwinism sort of philosophy that the world is steeped in. And it just says, you know what? You're a highly evolved animal. You have base needs. You have base instincts. And so you just act on those because we're all just animals. If you feel the urge to eat, you eat. If you want to drink, you drink. You want to have sex, you go have sex. And, and you know, biology, physiology, it's just the way you're wired. So what's the harm? <laughs> Paul says a lot. He says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What's he saying? We'll turn to Genesis chapter one. Paul's answering the, the, this, this question that he knows that they've got in their hearts, which basically is, hey, look, this is just anatomy. This is just physiology. This is just what happens. We're, you know, it's the natural function of the body. You're hungry, you eat, you're thirsty, you drink, you want sex, you have sex. Paul's saying, no, you're not an animal. Genesis chapter 1. What we have here in Genesis chapter 1, um, we're going to be picking it up in verse 25. But before we do, let me just sort of set the stage. We've got the creation account here, all right? And so what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is how God created things. And, and just to shorthand it for you, in day 1, he creates light and he, and he establishes night and day. Day 2, uh, he creates the firmament in heaven. Uh, Day three, he creates the earth and the sea and the plants. Day four, uh, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Then on the fifth day, he creates the fish and the the birds. And then on the sixth day, he creates animals. Then he creates man. And of course, on the seventh day, he rested. Now in verse 25, we pick it up on the sixth day as God creates these animals He's brought forth the living creatures, the cattle and the sheep and so on. And verse 25 says, And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. Take note of that. He made the animals according to its kind, right? Then he makes man. And you'll notice in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us, who's us? The Godhead, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's our triune God. And so it's, it's one God eternally existing in three persons. And so this is the us in let us. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit say collectively, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. See, man is created differently than animals. Animals are made according to its kind, but we are made according to his kind. We're made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. We are not animals. And so God continues, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle 
over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We are created in the image of God. We are not mere animals. We are not uh, just a, a highly evolved form of an animal. We are superior to animals. We're made in the nature and image of God. We govern, we rule, we reign over the animal kingdom. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You can almost see an exclamation point on that. God's saying, Genesis 127, get it straight. It's not this Darwinian evolutionism. It's not Adam and Steve. It's this is the way I've made it to be. And God makes it very clear. Verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's the idea. Here's the the big thing. You're an image bearer of God. You're not an animal. God's created you with dignity, with value, with worth. And what happens then in that being created in the image of God and with sex being this powerful vehicle that God has created to bind a husband and wife together, what happens when two people have sex? It's not like two dogs hooked up on your front lawn and you got to hose them off to get them out. It's not that way. It's something happens at a deep and a profound level when you're engaged in a sexual union with another person because you were both created in the image of God and God's created that union in a very significant way. And so there is no such thing as casual sex. It just doesn't exist because there is this this binding dynamic that takes place, this, this, this bond that takes place. And so casual sex, outside of of a marriage relationship, it becomes something extremely wounding, extremely shaming, extremely damaging. And God knows that. And we're going to look at this next week as we get into chapter 7. We're going to talk about uh, sex in the marriage relationship and how God intends it to be and, and the purposes that it serves, this divine holy purpose. But there are those of you today, and I I hadn't had this in my notes, and I was praying this morning, and the Lord had me just to, to put this in, that because sex outside of marriage, because sexual sin is damaging, is wounding, causes shame, scars the soul, and because, statistically speaking, one in four women are either raped or involved in some sort of sexual abuse or some sort of a abusive uh, experience in their past. And because we live in an age where there is such rampant promiscuity, it occurs to me that there are many here who have been damaged and wounded and shamed in this area of sex. Some of you here today, you have been raped. Some of you here today, you have suffered sexual abuse in some way. Some of you here today, have had an abortion. Some of you here today have been promiscuous in your past. Some of you here today have venereal disease as a direct result of your sexual sin. And here's what God would say to you today, if that's you in this place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, God says this. I can get there quick enough. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17. It tells us this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. And some of you come in here today and you're wounded and you're carrying baggage and, you're, and you are profoundly injured by your past, by one of the things that I've mentioned. And the image that comes to my mind as you read in the book of, of Acts, there's a, an account there where, where uh, Peter, the apostle, God's preparing him to, to go into a Gentile's house. He wants him to take the gospel to these Gentiles. And Peter, he's a Jew, and he's still kind of wrapping his head around and trying to just kind of come into the terms of, hey, Jesus Christ died both for the Jew and the Gentile, and he, and he still hasn't quite put the pieces together yet. And so God gives to Peter this vision. He's up on the rooftop. It's mealtime. He's really hungry. He falls into this trance, the Bible says. And, and he sees this vision of this sheet being let down with all kinds of animals on it. And they're all unclean animals from a Jewish dietary perspective. And, and Peter sees this and he hears the, the Lord say to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And, and Peter says, Certainly not, Lord. I, I can't eat that stuff. That's, that's, that ain't kosher. Uh, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. I'm not going to eat this. And he has the vision three times. And then the Lord says to him, he says, don't you dare call unclean what I have made clean. And the application for Peter at the time is to say, look, I've made the Gentiles clean. Jesus died for the sins of all men, the Jew as well as the Gentile. And I would say the application for some of you here this morning where you come in and you've been shackled with this guilt and you're shackled with this shame. And I would say to you that in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things become new. And this is not a license to go on sinning, but it is a liberation from a life led in sin that you can be in this place today and you can be set free. Maybe you're here today and you have an abortion in your past, maybe a couple of abortions in your past, and that has been a guilt and a shame that you've carried with you now that you're a Christian and and you, you can't get over that. And I would say in Christ, you're a new creation. And those babies are in the, the presence of the Lord. The Bible says be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Those babies are with Jesus now and you will be united with them in heaven and you have been made a new creation. You've been created in the image of God and you need today to enter into a place of being set free, of being that that place where I'm ashamed of my sin. I'm ashamed of my past. Yes, Lord, I, I hate who I was. But thank you, Jesus, I don't have to live there. And and I would just say, and I believe that this is a word from the Holy Spirit for some even right now. In fact, the Lord's just telling me, and I I just pray you'd bear with me. The Lord's just telling me to pray right now. So, Lord, I just want to pray for that person right now who hasn't been able to let go of this. And I just pray right this moment in the name of Jesus, in agreement with your spirit, that you would help them just to confess you, you, to confess their sin to you. You say, if we confess our sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know that all means all. And so, Lord, cleanse them. Help them just to let go of this at your feet and to, to go and sin no more. In Jesus' name. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul counters another argument that's so popular today. Verse 15, he says, Do you not know that 
Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Here's the lie. This is the argument that is so prevalent. The argument is this. It's my body, so I can do what I want with it. This is my body. I can do whatever I want with it. It's none of your business. We hear this rap from the the pro-abortion camp all day long. Uh, The pro-abortion camp loves this argument. It's the woman's right to choose. In fact, here's a a few bumper stickers that come out of the pro-abortion movement. I don't don't say right to choose. They're pro-abortion. Their their bumper stickers say this. uh, Keep your theology off my biology. Another bumper sticker that they have is keep your laws away from my uterus. Another bumper sticker they have is it's my body and it's my choice. Really? It's your body. Who told you it's your body? That's my question. Who told you that your body is yours? See, what Paul's saying is this. Who made your body? God, who came to live a sinless life, was tempted, dies, rose again to redeem you and your body. God, who's coming again to judge you in your body for everything that you've done with your body? God, who are you going to spend eternity with in your body? God, right? So who owns your body? It ain't you. And I went to public school and I figured that out, okay? You don't own your body. God owns your body. He bought and he paid for it. He made it, he redeemed it. It's gonna be with him. It's his. You didn't make it, you didn't redeem it. You're not gonna resurrect it. Everything you have is on loan from God, including your body. And we're called to be good stewards of it. And, and, and I would say something else, and I wanna say this as lovingly as I can. Jesus didn't give you your body to go whoring around and sinning with it. Did I, did I say that lovingly enough? <laughs> he didn't. And some of us just need to repent. Some of us just need to repent because he gave you your body to honor him, to enjoy life, to worship him, and to obey him. And so Paul says in verse 16, he says, or do you not know? And of course, his saying that means they don't know and they should. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here's what he's saying. Another argument that people give is this. They say, hey, what I do with my body is my business and it just affects me. And I would say that's a flat out lie from the pit of hell. Satan would love for you to think that your sexual sin only affects you. And I would say to prove that that attitude is wrong, you talk to any child whose parents have split as a result of sexual sin and you ask them if their parents' sexual sin didn't harm them, didn't wound them deeply. You talk to their families, you talk to their friends, you say, were you harmed by this person's sin? Did it, did it damage you? Did it hurt you? Did it put you in a place where 
you, your trust was obliviated, where you were abandoned and, and dealing with abandonment issues or bitterness or loneliness, was, was, were home splits, were, did, did you suffer financially because of somebody else's sexual sin? Was a business lost because of a sexual sin? Was relationships damaged? And then across the board, you will see it never happens in a vacuum. It always has profound effects. The, the most notable example that comes to me, a biblical example, think of King David in, in 2 Samuel 11. And there, there's King David, and, you know, he's on top of the world, man. They're, they, God's blessed him abundantly, and, and the nation of Israel is just fighting and conquering their enemies on every front, and David decides he's going to take a vacation, springtime. Kings go off to war. He ought to be on the front lines. He stays home, cruises around on the roof, sees Bathsheba naked, calls her over, hooks up with her, and it's all downhill from there. His whole life now unravels. And so what you see is this string, the string of sin that emanates out from that. And it doesn't just, it's just not, hey, this is my life. This is my body. And it doesn't concern anybody else. Because before it was over, he had killed his reputation. He had killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He, the baby that they, was produced from this illicit affair ultimately was killed. And then we read something really interesting which uh, gives us sort of insight in First Chronicles chapter 21. Chapter 20 basically sets the stage and makes you realize, oh, this is the same time frame when, you know, those events happened in, in 2 Samuel 11. And, and so what happens in chapter 20, they're having all this victory and all this stuff, and David becomes puffed up with pride. And so in chapter 21, he tells all his guys, hey, man, we're, we're just thriving, and I'm beating everybody. All of our forces are, are, are killing everybody. And hey, you know what? Why don't you go around? I want to number everybody. I want to know who, you know, how many people we got. I want to see just all the stuff that we've got. And these guys are like, David, I think, I think God told us not to do that. David's like, ah, go do it. See, he's gotten so far away from God. He's gotten so far puffed up with pride. He, he's not even hearing from God anymore. He can't even remember what God's told him to do, what he hasn't told him to do. And he doesn't care. That's the worst part. And so they go out and they number everybody and God sees, God hears, God discovers what's going on. And God tells David, you blew it. And God says to David, he goes, look, I'm your toast. I'll give you your choice. I'm going to give you three options. One of these things is going to happen to you. And he names out, goes out the punishment that he's going to get. And he goes, you pick which one you want because you're getting one of them. And David, the the first smart thing he did in a long time, throws himself at the feet of God. And he says, you're going to have to choose. I'm going to, I'd rather trust in you than men. I'm throwing myself in your hands, God. I've sinned. I've done a horrible thing. And God chooses the punishment, and before he was done with the punishment, 70,000 people died because of his sexual sin. And we would say in our arrogance and in our sin, hey, you know, what I do is my business, and it doesn't affect anybody else. And I say that's a satanic lie. It always affects other people. It always harms other people. It always wounds and some of you are in a place right now and you're, you are on the verge of destroying your life. And Satan would whisper in your ear and say, hey, it doesn't affect anybody else. 
hey, this is just between the two of you. You might even lean over to your girlfriend right now and go, hey, it's all right, baby. We're, 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 we're married. We're married in God's eyes. Now you're married in your pants, and you're going to make a major mistake. And God would say, don't do it. Don't do it. We need to count the cost. And so Paul says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. He says to flee sexual immorality. Very interesting word, that word flee in the Greek. It's fugo, and we get the word fugitive from it. And here's what it means, literally. It means to escape and be saved by flight. To escape and be saved by flight. Let me illustrate this for you in the most practical illustration I can give because God gave it to me this week. I went down to the grocery store this week, um, and, and it was just a, a quick trip, and I left really quickly, and I left my glasses at home. And when I, when I don't have my glasses on, I, I don't see really well. I mean, I'm not blind as a bat. It's not Mr. Magoo, but it's closed. So I left without my glasses, and I'm in the store, and I'm getting a f- just a few things, and I'm, an, I'm oblivious anyway, so not only can't I see, but I don't pay attention. You drive up next to me and honk your horn, I'm probably not going to look over. I'm just in my own world. So I go in through the grocery store, I kind of get the stuff, and I go, I walk up to the, to the line. I'm barely looking where I'm going. I walk up to the line, and I'm looking in my basket, and I reach down, and I actually start to take stuff out and put it on the, the carousel there, or whatever it is, the, the ramp, whatever. So, so there, you know, the thing, the, what do they call that? Somebody help me out. The belt, yeah, all right. So I'm I'm sticking stuff on the conveyor belt. Okay, so this chick's in front of me. And, um, and I only notice her because she, she leans across me and my basket to get a magazine out of the rack. And so she's totally invading my space. Now, now I see her. And she's close. And you know she's close if I can see her without my glasses. So I see this gal. Now, um, she looked like she spent her entire life in either the plastic surgeon's office or the gym, okay? And she smelled like she just stepped out of a perfume factory, okay? And she's wearing a, a, a handkerchief, I kid you not. She got nothing else on. She got like a handkerchief on. I mean, I can hear my wife's voice in my head, honey, you're gonna catch a cold, you know? And so... <laughs> and, so and so there she is. And I'm saying there is nothing left to the imagination. And, I, and so what I do, I look, and I start taking, I'm by Braille now, taking my stuff <laughs> off the conveyor belt back in my basket. I left. I had, I had like a bunch of stuff out. I took it off, stuck it back in my basket, and I walked down into another thing. It was so embarrassing. But here's the point. I didn't stand a chance. I didn't stand a chance. If I was there, if I stayed there, I was going to sin. And so I did what any smart man should do in that situation. I ran. I ran as far and as fast as I possibly could. Turn to, um, turn to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39, we're going to be in verse 7, but let me just catch up to speed. Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, he winds up 
in a guy named Potiphar's house in Egypt. And uh, Potiphar is a rich guy, and he's got the trophy wife. And uh, there in this place, his wife starts coming on to Joseph. Joseph's a good-looking guy, very prosperous. And uh, so verse 7, it came to pass after these things that his master, that's, that's Potiphar, his master's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. How's that for a pickup line? Let's go to bed. So the trophy wife in the situation, hey, here we go. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he's, command, or he's committed all that he has into my hand. In other words, he's given me so much freedom and so much trust that he doesn't even keep account of anything. I mean, that's how much this guy trusts me. Verse 9, he says, There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Something maybe to underline in your Bibles and remember the next time you're in a tempting situation. That's what David would say as he lamented his sin with Bathsheba against you and you only have I sinned. Verse 10, so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men were, uh, of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. That word ran, very interesting in the Hebrew. Do you know what that means? It means he ran. <laughs> Let me ask you, what do you need to run from today? And this isn't just the men. Ladies too, what do you need to run from today, right now? And you know the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now and telling you exactly what it is. Maybe it's a physical person. You know, somebody at work, or it's a neighbor, or it's a friend. Maybe it's a friend on Facebook. Maybe somebody's requested you as a friend. Who do you need to run from right now? Maybe it's, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you just find yourself in sexual sin after sexual sin, and I would submit to you that if that's you, maybe the best thing you can do is run. Maybe it's an electronic person. Maybe your situation is television. Maybe it's internet. And maybe you just need, you need to run from, from that. And you say, well, how do I run from that? And there's any number of ways. I know a guy, he's a businessman. He travels all the time. When he goes into the hotel room, the first thing he does is he says, he takes the box, he disconnects it, and he sticks it outside the room on the floor, and he tells them, would you come pick up the, the, the cable receiver, please? Just, he does it flat out. If you have a computer which we live in the 21st century. I can't believe that anybody doesn't have a computer these days, but some people don't. <clears throat> they drove their horse and buggy here to church. If you have a computer and you're on the internet and you don't have software, some sort of a, an accountability software, in my humble opinion, you're a fool. And I would say if you don't have that accountability software, especially you men, you can fix it right now. You've got no excuses. 698-5031. That's our office phone number. You call, you ask for our multimedia director, he'll give you the program. He'll send it to you. 
send you a link. Better yet, you send them an email. It's scott at reliancechurch.org, and that's my son, and he's, if I go anywhere, if anybody, anything on my computers, my son gets a report. You want to know accountability? The report goes to my son, and it goes to two of our elders. And don't you think I'm doing some Google searches, I'm doing a message on sex, I'm not freaking out as I'm Googling stuff. I mean, seriously, I, there was something I was researching for last week's message. It, came, it, was, it was self-image, body image thing, and it was about, you know, girls that are warped from Barbies, and a report goes out to my elders that I've gone to this site that's talking about Barbies. He's like, are you working on your Barbie collection? I'm like, no, I'm not. Here's what, and you, you know, you just get paranoid about it. Look, there are ways that you can run. That's my point, and some of y'all need to run, and you need to be aware of that. Listen, here's what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel. He said, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Here's his point. It's not literal. This is hyperbole. And it's an exaggeration. That's what hyperbole is. He's he's not saying literally, if your hand causes you to sin, cut your hand off. Your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. No, he's saying you need to go to extreme measures if you have sexual temptation in your life. If you've got some sort of a temptation, you have to go to extreme measures not to give in to that temptation. And so Paul says back in verse 18, all other sins that a man commits are outside his body. Here's his point. It's not that all, basically what he's saying is that not all sin has the same effect. That's his point. Some sins have different effects than other sins. Now, all sin, don't, don't, don't be confused by what I just said. All sin is bad. James 1.15 says that all sin, when it's full grown, leads to death. So, so that's not the point. But the point that he's making is that the effects of sexual sin poses an immediate threat within you and me. Why is that? Let's read on verse 19. Paul says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, our bodies, guys, are the vehicles through which we honor and glorify God. It's, It's through your physical body that you honor God and glorify God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. As a believer of God, the Holy Spirit comes into your life to take residence in your life the moment you profess faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The very next verse says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so the idea here is that what we do in our bodies is part of our relationship with God. And somebody might say, well, I disagree with that. Well, I'll prove you wrong. If you're involved in sexual sin today, or if you've been involved in sexual sin, my question for you is, how's your prayer life? How's your devotional life? How's it going in your growth group or in your fellowship with other Christians? And I'll answer that question for you. It's not going well. And you know it. 
See, because you can't have sex with your girlfriend and then spend time meditating in the book of Proverbs. It ain't going to happen. You, you, you can't be a girl who's sleeping with her boyfriend and then when you get done, you climb out of bed and you go to a prayer meeting. It's not going to happen. You see, what you do in your body has a direct effect on the manifestation of your relationship with God. It affects your relationship with God absolutely because sin separates you from others and from God. It leads to death and it kills relationships and it's just what it does. Sex only works inside of marriage. When, when I was a kid, there was a, a guy in, in our city who had a really nice Corvette. And uh, it ran on premium gasoline. And one day he backed that Corvette uh, out of his garage and he and his wife started cleaning the garage floor with the same premium gasoline that that Corvette ran on. And so there they had this, this gallon jug of gas and they poured it all over the floor and they were scrubbing the floor down with this gasoline. And the fuel vapor mixture got to such a point that it hit the ignition source of the hot water heater that was there in the garage and it blew up, burst into flames, destroyed his Corvette and killed he and his wife. And here's my point of application. That car, that Corvette, was designed to run on premium gasoline and when he had premium gasoline inside that car, zoom. But when he took that gasoline outside the place where it was designed to be and he applied it and used it in an application outside of that car, it wasn't zoom, it was boom. And it cost him his life. And my friend, sex is that way. That inside the confines of marriage, zoom, baby, it's great. It's awesome. And don't get me wrong, we're not prudes here. We're all for sex. It's a beautiful thing. God created it. It's amazing in a marriage relationship. But if you're here and you're involved in sexual sin outside of a marriage relationship, I will just warn you, I would just tell you, it's only a matter of time before that thing blows up in your face. And I would beg you today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It's also the day when you can repent of sin. It's the day when you can put those things behind you. And no matter where you have been, today can be different. By the Spirit of God, you can choose to walk in obedience after the Lord. And you can choose by the power of the Holy Spirit to say, it all ends here. It all ends now. And I close with verse 20 where Paul says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We partake of communion now at the close of our ceremony, and this is the price that you were purchased with. This bread represents Jesus' body broken for you. And the juice represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is the price that you were bought with. The Bible says God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And so as we come to the communion table today, as Christians who have been commanded by the Lord to do this often in remembrance of him, it's an opportunity for us fresh once again today, right now, to say, Lord, 
You died for my sins. Help me to die in you. Help me, Lord, to partake of communion, being cleansed, being made right, being made whole. Just that, that once again, first of the week reminder, I'm a new creature in Christ and I'm remembering what you've done for me. And I'm not going to live in the old nature. I'm going to live in the new nature. So help me, God. I've been bought with a price.